We're looking at more of this long prayer. Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 16 through 25. Just nine verses, but it's a long section. All these verses in this long psalm are long. Beginning in verse 16. Hear the word of God. But they and our fathers acted proudly, hardened their necks, and did not heed your commandments. They refused to obey, and they were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them. But they hardened their necks, and in their rebellion they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. But you are God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. Even when they made a molded calf for themselves and said, this is your God that brought you out of Egypt and worked great provocations, yet in your manifold mercies you did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of the, of the cloud did not depart from them by day to lead them on the road, nor the pillar of fire by night to show them light and the way they should go. You also gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. Moreover, you gave them kingdoms and nations and divided them into districts. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, the land of the king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You also multiplied their children as the stars of heaven and brought them into the land which you had told their fathers to go in and to possess. So the people went in and possessed the land. You subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hands with their kings and the people of the land, that they might do with them as they wished. And they took strong cities and a rich land and possessed houses full of all goods, cisterns already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and grew fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Oh, Father in heaven, thank you for your great goodness to us this morning, your covenant people. Thank you that we can hear your word and we can rejoice in it. Thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. Guide us, we pray. May we be teachable, and may we rejoice in your goodness to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, from last week, we looked at the first part of this long prayer, which I mentioned was, is considered by most the longest prayer in the Bible. And we looked at the first uh, 35%, about that, 40%, which is all on praising God and adoring the God of the covenant. And we saw the continuing of this week of renewal in worshiping the Lord. And during this time of confession, this is a prayer of confession, uh, they began that prayer that we also prayed after lunch in verses 5 through 15, that they were rejoicing in their creator. That they praised him. They adored him as their creator. They praised him as the one who made a covenant with them. They praised him as the one who delivered them in miraculous ways. And they praised him because he gave them his perfect law. And he provided abundantly for them all along the way. And now we're going to begin looking at verse 16, the, a pattern this is a pattern or a cycle, I guess you could call it, of rebellion and sin by the people of God and by God's amazing grace. And we see the people uh, in this prayer confessing. That is, uh, they're alternating between admitting their great sin against the covenant-making God and acknowledging his great grace to them. So let's begin by looking at this pattern just for a minute. 
this uh, cycle of how the covenant of grace uh, was revealed here in history, where this is a history lesson in a sense, to the people of God, and how God's covenant mercies were shown continually to his uh, rebellious people. So first of all, if you're going to put number one, God in his mercy gave his law. God has given us his law because he is a merciful God. And he made a covenant with his people through Abraham. And then secondly, number two, the people of Israel disobeyed that law. They were given the law by his mercy, his kindness, his grace, and uh, they disobeyed that law. They broke the covenant and they rebelled. Sin is rebellion. 1 John 3 says, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. So sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. This week, uh, Doug Wilson, or Phil sent, uh, maybe many of you saw this, I think he put it on Facebook, and it was called uh, the 21 Maxims for Discouraged Pastors. And I don't think Phil thought I was discouraged, but, and I'm not, I wasn't discouraged. Of all weeks I should not be discouraged is I had a whole week to meditate on the amazing grace of God to me, a sinner. How could I be discouraged? But it was a good article. And uh, he said in that, Doug Wilson said in that, sin is lawless. Sin rejects sensible boundaries. Certainly the law of God is the most sensible boundary. Sin is therefore incoherent, he said. Sin makes no sense. And then he said, I think he's trying to encourage pastors, do not waste any time trying to figure out the logic of sin. That logic does not exist. Rather, spend your time figuring out how the related lies work. The lies that are all surrounded, surrounding our sin. Sin is so irrational, as Phil said this morning again. It's irrational, it's destructive, it's deceiving. But the, in any case, people committed this sin, they committed lawlessness. And then third... There's a rebellion. Or there's a rebellion, I'm sorry. They, they committed that rebellion. And then number three is uh, God brought his discipline and his chastisement to them. Phil also mentioned that this morning from Psalm 32. So a father, a loving father, disciplines his children. Hebrews chapter 12. And chastening is not joyful. Children, you know that. It's not joyful at the present time. It's painful, uh, but it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness because God is a God of grace. And he fulfills his covenant to his people. Number four, the people suffered. They experienced the just consequences of their sin. And in their case, some of that suffering came by uh, captivity. Some of it was by defeats in battle. Some was just sheer calamity or sickness. Which then, number five, results in a conviction of sin or a sorrow, a realization that this is the just consequence. We are receiving this. It's a just consequence of breaking God's law. And for Israel, sometimes that took decades uh, for that cycle to come around, uh, or generations even. Uh, but for us, we pray for us, that will be much shorter, and it can and should be much shorter. Number six, it was followed by a time of confession or an acknowledgement of their sin. An acknowledgement of the truth is what it was. Uh, either a profession of faith, that he is the true and living God, he is the covenant-keeping God, uh, or an acknowledgement of their sin. So they're alternating. And in this passage we see they're alternating uh, between those. They're acknowledging the Lord and they're acknowledging their sin against him. John Calvin wrote in the Institutes, he said, It is fitting that by the confession of our own wretchedness, we show forth the goodness and mercy of our God. Among ourselves, 
in the body here and before the whole world. This whole prayer is doing that. It's an example of that. It's contrasting their sinfulness and God's great mercy. This is one reason I believe confession should be practiced in the body of Christ, uh, that the goodness of the Lord would be shown forth among us, in us, for our encouragement in the building up of the body. And also, of course, among the world. And Rodney referred to that, I believe, a little bit, that they would see in us, as we confess, um, that they might see God in us. They might know that we are disciples by our love for one another, by our forgiveness to each other as we confess to each other. And then seventh, uh, there is repentance. There's true turning away from sin. That's what repentance is, an actual turning. They were going this way, they're going to go this way. And it's a resubmitting to God's law. Now, you all know 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, but it says all scripture is given by inspiration of God. So we're walking down, God has given us lovingly his scriptures, and we're walking down this path, and he's given us this uh, to, to teach us. It's given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable for doctrine or teaching. So we're going down this path according to the will of God and the law of God, and then we start falling off this path, and then he reproves us, again, by his word, by his law. So we're kind of coming around. And then he corrects us. He uses us in each other's lives. He gives us scripture, uh, and he corrects us, and we get back on the path, the instruction of righteousness. So we get on these cycles. But God, in his mercy and grace, has given us his word, and um, it's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Well, then number eight, uh, having gone through all of that, there is, I believe, a much stronger recognition, a deeper understanding of God's grace in giving us his law and of his process. This process goes on in teaching us of his grace. We're always learning more of his grace. And the people here at this stage were experiencing a renewal, as we talked about last week. This is a covenant renewal worship time. They were being renewed uh, in this time of worship. They were beginning to understand again his great mercy and grace to them, and they're repenting of their sin. Now, all this results in, in them and in us uh, having a, a time of relearning, a remembering, a giving thanks for God's covenant mercy and forgiveness, for his covenant faithfulness to give grace continually to his redeemed people. And this is what the Lord's covenant with Abraham established for them and for us, and which was sealed by the blood of the covenant of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So this pattern is also clear in another many, actually a number of places in scripture. Uh, one is in, in Psalm 106, but I would like us to look at one of those patterns. It has some differences in there I'd like to note. So if you'd turn with me to Judges chapter 2, the book of Judges chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 10 through 19. Judges 2, starting in chapter, uh, verse 10 of chapter 2. <clears throat> When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, so they'd been wandering a long time, but that generation died, they'd been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. In many commentaries I saw, this is essentially a summary verse for the book of Judges, for the people of God even, and, and their pattern. So the next generation did not know the Lord, it says, or his mighty works for his people. And since they did not know the Lord or his work, they did not obey his law. They did not know his law well. And we here, just to bring it down to where we are at here, we here promise 
at every baptism and when every new member comes forward to um, impart, to help uh, those people grow in the Lord and and have a knowledge of his works and of his word. Uh, We do that to each other and uh, and for our covenant children. Uh, And or we have promised to pray for the parents who are seeking to do that. They are called to do that. We pray that future generations here will arise after us who will know the Lord and his work and love his word dearly. And then in verse 11, it goes on, Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They provoked the Lord to anger. Now last week, in referring to the regulative principle of worship in Deuteronomy 12, 31, uh, they were commanded, we saw that they were commanded not to worship in that way, referring to the pagan nations all around them. And this phrase in Judges 2 here, they provoked the Lord to anger, is similar to the wording here in Nehemiah uh, chapter 9, verse 18. It says that the people worked great provocations against the Lord and against his law because they worshiped exactly as they were told not to do. And verse 14 goes on, and the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. So this begins that third stage of discipline, of chastisement, because he's a loving father. So he delivered them into the hands of plunderers who despoiled them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. They bore the consequences of their sin. They suffered uh, their rebellion. And this is why the people here in chapter 9 are in the state they are in, because they have come to the stage where they realize that this is what they are doing. We'll see more of this uh, next week. They also were delivered by the Lord into the hands of plunderers who despoiled them. So it's a similar situation. But 16, verse 16 says, Nevertheless, nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges. That's his act of grace to them. His kindness and his mercy was to raise up judges for them, who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. It was an act of God's great mercy to them. But in verse 17, it says, Yet, yet they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods. It's like a broken marriage covenant with their God. And bowed down to them. They turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do so. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of that judge. Again, he's showing his kindness and grace to these people who had rebelled against him. And it says, for the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning. They had cried out to him and were suffering greatly. They were moved, he was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. Our father is a loving father. He pities his children. And he hears the cry of his children. In verse 19, it says, And it came to pass, when the judge was dead, here's another cycle, a downward cycle, really. It's probably a second downward cycle. It says, When the judge was dead, that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. And that pattern continued in the time of judges. So, They were a truly stiff-necked people, meaning stubborn. They were stubborn in doing sin, in repeatedly departing from the law of God, which he had lovingly, lovingly given to them, in turning their own way. All we like sheep have gone astray. We we have turned, all of us, to his own way. But the people here in Nehemiah's day were at a different stage. They were remembering the repeated sin of their fathers. They were looking back. They were recalling here 
uh, and they were confessing their own sins. They were convicted of sin, and so they were confessing, and they were repenting of that. This remembering of their history as an unfaithful people uh, and of God's faithfulness to them was a great blessing to them. They were remembering their history, and as I mentioned, Psalm 106 points out this. It's a a detailed uh, example, uh, again, of that. And Psalm 106, verse 44 says, Nevertheless, he regarded their affliction when he heard their cry. And for their sake, he remembered his covenant. He's always remembering his covenant to us. But they always had one clear example in their history. You can go back through their history, and there's a lot of repeated uh, rebellion like this. But they had one clear example in their history, and that being Abraham. In verse 8, last week in Nehemiah 9, it said, You found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him. Talking of Abraham. And so we begin in verses 16 and 17 here by seeing that they uh, and their ancestors showed ungratefulness for the blessings of the covenant that was given to them. Now some of those blessings we noted last week and and we prayed also. Again, he was their creator. He made a covenant with them. He delivered them. He gave them his perfect law and he provided for them. This section is beginning in this long prayer of confession of confession for the sin of their fathers and their own rebellion as being similar to their fathers. In verse 16 it says, but they and our fathers acted proudly. After hearing and adoring God, they now recall that they had rebelled. But they, they and our fathers acted proudly, hardened their necks, and did not heed your commandments. They refused to obey. And they were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them. But they hardened their necks, and in their rebellion, they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. So in spite of all the mighty and the wonderful things God uh, did to show them his covenant love, they, first of all, it says, they acted proudly. And we are all proud by nature, as our ancestors were, down to Adam. And we can be very blind, I believe, to just how proud we are and how much it impacts us. And we need to realize we are much more full of pride than we think we are, especially if we don't think so. Uh, The people here were admitting that they and their ancestors acted proudly, thinking that they could break his good law to them and do their own will and probably have no consequence. And it also says they were stiff-necked, or it also says they hardened their necks. And the picture here is, you know, they they plowed with oxen, and oxen, uh, I guess, were stubborn, but they had what was called a goad. It was usually a long stick, very sharp point, maybe even a metal sharp point, because they have thick hides. And so they would use that. Sometimes they would uh, poke at the heel, of the animal, or sometimes it was at the neck to try to turn them one way or the other, because they, they often refused to do that. And so the, uh, the people here are being called stiff-necked. They hardened their necks. Uh, it was also could be possibly that they, they chafed at the, the uh, yoke. They didn't want a yoke on them. They wanted to go where they wanted to go. And doctor, there's a Dr. Ray Pritchard, uh, as a pastor, sometimes I read some of what he puts online, but he had a, something this recently called Eight Marks of a Stiff-Necked People. <laughs> so that, this is interesting. First of all, he said, uh, number one of the eight marks, uh, I think there are actually probably more, but anyway, he li- limited it to eight. And he said, certainly, or a certainty that you are right. In other words, most, you know, my opinions are right. My opinions are mostly right. Secondly, a refusal to listen to anyone else 
In other words, you won't really consider that, that you might be wrong and they might be right. You might have something to learn here. So refusal to listen to, to anyone else. Third, uh, being defensive when criticized. In, in other words, you're, you ra- rapidly defend yourself. You won't accept the possibility that you need to make changes. Fourth, making excuses for your shortcomings. In other words, again, you won't recognize your faults, your, your shortcomings. Lashing out at others, number five. Uh, again, anger, in anger. Uh, anger is rooted in pride and, and in selfishness. And then he said, number six, no desire to examine your own life. We examine others in detail. That's usually not too hard to do in pride, uh, but we don't examine our own. And then number seven, a repeated pattern of behavior, which is what we're seeing in the people here. Uh, pride is very deep, and we can see it in the history of people, and of any, in, in the history of any people, and we see it in the history of, of God's people here. And then number eight, prayer. Prayer without repentance. In other words, words without, uh, remember last week we talked about rending, not rending your clothing in sorrow for your sin, but rending your heart. Words without true rending, like uh, Pharisees. And I added one, number nine, resisting the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter seven, Stephen was uh, speaking very boldly to the council. They'd assembled, uh, they called him to come forward and he was speaking and he in a sense gave another history there of the people of Israel and their failings. And he said this at the end of that recounting of history. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did so do you. And yet, I was thinking of the council members there, listening to him. I, I think they were very proud of their knowledge, of their power, their position, even of their lineage, their history. Kind of like Saul of Tarsus before his eyes were opened. He was very proud of his accomplishments. And though they certainly knew of the history of their fathers, of their ancestors' willfulness and their rebellion, they probably thought, well, yeah, that was back then. Not my family, you know, not me. Well, if we are ever tempted to think as they do, Proverbs twenty nine twenty one is a stern warning for us all. He who is often rebuked and hardens his neck, same, same phrase here. He who is often rebuked and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. So if we won't receive rebuke and correction, by the Holy Spirit through his word and through our brothers and sisters he sends to rebuke us, uh, there will be some destruction. As Phil shared it from Psalm 32, there will be a consequence and we reap what we sow. And then it goes on, it says they were disobedient. They, they did not heed your commands, it says. They refused to obey. So although they knew the law, they knew the truth, they refused. They willfully turned from the law and they actively disobeyed. And then it says they were ungrateful. In other words, they were forgetful. They just weren't thankful. It says they were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them. May the Lord keep us from that. He's done wondrous things in our lives, all of us. May he keep us from not being mindful of of his wonders among us. So they forgot his wonders to them, and they were not thankful. May the Lord make us a thankful people who are mindful of his wonders in our lives and in this church who remember his works. He has made his wonderful works to be remembered. And it also says they were rebellious. In fact, they were unfaithful. And in their rebellion, it says they appointed a leader to return them to their bondage. 
They wanted to go back. So they chose, they were willing to follow another leader to help them return to bondage. And I always think of the Keith Green song, so you want to go back to Egypt. Now listen to that again uh, this week. They wanted to go back to slavery. And we do that. We do that in our own lives. We rebel. You know, they rebelled, not just against God's appointed leader, uh, Moses, but against God himself. The prophet Samuel told King Saul, after Saul had uh, kept back what, some of what he was commanded to destroy, Samuel told him, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. And stubbornness, or again, the same phrase, being stiff-necked, is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. Extreme consequence for uh, that king and his heritage. So rebellion against the law of God is as bad as witchcraft in its outright disobedience of the Lord. A rebellious heart is always practicing idolatry, worshiping self, or worshiping someone else above God. And if you happen to be thinking as we were going through this list of some of their sins, as I went through this, uh, the sins of the people of Israel, you know, how could they have done such a thing? How could they see a pillar of fire and a pillar? How could they see all of these things and do these kind of things to the living God who had given them his law? After all they had seen him do. But you know where I'm going here. But we must realize we have also been similar. We have been like them in some ways. And related to the need for continual repentance, I'd like to read again uh, from the Valley of Vision. I mentioned this last week. I'm sure I cannot read with the emotion, the feeling I have when I'm saying this before the God before whom I must repent as I confess my own sin. May he give me grace to do so. This is called continual repentance. And it's about basically the clothing that God in his grace gives us through the Lord Jesus Christ. He graciously gives us and, and it's about thankfulness for his grace. Thankfulness that we can put off the old and we can put on the Lord Jesus Christ now, the, the garments of righteousness. O God of grace, thou hast imputed my sin to my substitute and hast imputed his righteousness to my soul, clothing me with a bridegroom's robe, decking me with jewels of holiness, but in my Christian walk, I'm still in rags. My best prayers are stained with sin. My penitential tears are so much impurity. My confessions of wrong are so many aggravations of sin. My receiving the Spirit is tinctured with selfishness. I need to repent of my repentance. I need my tears to be washed. I have no robe to bring to cover my sins, no loom to weave my own righteousness. I am always standing clothed in filthy garments and by grace am always receiving change of raiment. For thou dost always justify the ungodly. I am always going into the far country and always returning home as a prodigal. Always saying, Father, forgive me. And thou art always bringing forth the best robe. Every morning let me wear it. Every evening return in it. Go out to the day's work in it. Be married in it. Be wound in death in it. Stand before the great white throne in it. Enter heaven in its shining as the sun. Grant me never to lose sight 
of the exceeding sinfulness of my sin, the exceeding righteousness of salvation, the exceeding glory of Christ, the exceeding beauty of holiness, and the exceeding wonder of grace. May it be so. And may the Lord make us the opposite of all of those things that we just looked at here in Nehemiah 9. May he make us the opposite of them as we grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord as he sanctifies us. Instead of continuing in pride, may we be growing in Christ-like humility as he showed us in Philippians 2. Instead of being a stiff-necked people, may we be teachable and willing to be directed by the Lord, to be goaded by him. Instead of disobedient, may we delight in knowing and keeping the law of God. Instead of being ungrateful, For his manifold mercies, may we be constantly thankful for his love to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, for his steadfast love to us and his great kindness constantly shown to us. Instead of being rebellious, may we be quickly compliant to his will. And instead of being unfaithful, may we be dutiful. May we be steadfast in trusting him and his word. In 17b it says, but you are God. There's a big change here. But you are God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. Now here, these first four words here are a huge contrast to what we just saw, that list. But you are God. And look at his response to unfaithful people. This is an infinitely huge contrast between the people and the true and the living God. But you are God. It's like having all those sins listed on a page over here, and on this page... In a hundred-point font, it says, but you are God. It reminded me, when I first thought of this, uh, of Isaiah 55. The Lord said, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And it also reminded me of Romans 3. You know the first part of Romans 3? It tells us about what we are by nature. We are sinners. No one is righteous, no, not one. But then in verse 21 of Romans 3, it says, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. Praise God. His grace even gives us the heart to repent and the heart to believe. And then Romans 5.8. You know Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. He demonstrates it. He's demonstrating it here, as we will see. He's been demonstrating it to us continuously, and we must praise him for that. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we are, were sinners, while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. He sacrificed for us. God did not forsake them. He, he did not forsake us because he is a covenant-keeping God. He is a merciful Heavenly Father. And although we are sometimes stubborn, disobedient, ungrateful, rebellious, unfaithful, Uh, We easily return to sin. Uh, We are willful in rejecting leadership sometimes, his and and those whom he has instituted. Our covenant-making and covenant-keeping God is, first of all, it says, ready to pardon. He is ready to pardon. He's always ready. Our Lord is ready to forgive his people, as we saw in Psalm 32. He's ready to forgive those who confess and who repent. And that is done by his grace also, who rely on his covenant mercies. And we're to be imitators of God as dearly beloved children, it says in Ephesians 5. So we have to ask ourselves, are, are we, am I, are we ready to forgive as we have been forgiven? This great forgiveness, are we forgiving in that way? We're to be kind to one another, 
tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave us. Jay Adams, in a book called uh, From Forgiven to Forgiving, a wonderful book, he has this quote, a forgiving community is made up of forgiven people who have not forgotten that fact. In pharisaical and legalistic communities, people have forgotten it is only by the grace of God that they are what they are. Paul said the same thing. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Congregations, he said, at their best, are composed of grateful people who do, do remember the pit from which they were rescued. May that characterize us. And I also remembered Rod's sermon. I, I could bring some of that actually back to memory. It's called The Gift of Forgiveness back in December 2010. Amazes me that I could remember anything seven that long ago. But if you, I would recommend re-listening to The Gift of Forgiveness, December 2010. All, and then it goes on. Our God is gracious and merciful, it says. So the, the question here I would ask us all to ask ourselves, uh, are we, am I growing in giving grace and in showing mercy? Just like we are seeing here in so many ways, so many times. We have been shown eternal mercy Brothers and sisters, repeated mercy by the God of grace, which we don't even probably acknowledge. May we give mercy to each other and speak in, in that way as children of our loving Heavenly Father. Ephesians 4.29, we should not let any corrupt word proceed out of our mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. We are called to this, and we are able by his grace to be this way. Then again, it says, our God is slow to anger. The Lord, it said, did not forsake his rebellious people in anger. And he calls us to listen to each other and to be patient with each other. Are we quick to anger? We should know when we are, actually. We should ask the Lord to help us to be aware when we are quick to anger. And are we praying that the Lord's, for the Lord's power to deal with that anger, which does not bring about the righteous life that God desires, it says in James. May we be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And then it says, our God is abundant in kindness, our Lord is abundant in acts of kindness toward his people. We could spend the rest of the day listing that in each other's lives. Are we growing in kindness? Not just acts of kindness, but kindness in our thoughts toward each other. Which influences, by the way, how we will speak to them, probably, and how we will act to them. We have kind thoughts toward them. May we grow in kindness to one another here. Then it says our God is faithful to his covenant. If, if we see anything in this passage, we see his faithfulness to his covenant promises. That is what this prayer is all about. It's about unfaithful covenant breakers contrasted with the covenant faithfulness of the Lord our God. And he has promised to never leave us or forsake us, as we saw in our readings today. In your hard times, do you believe this? Do you remember his covenant? Do you rest on his faithfulness to you in, in this covenant? And then in verse 18, we see that the Lord did not forsake them. And it said, even when. This is a big even when also. Verse 18, even when. In this heinous sin here. Even as bad as those sins were that we just looked at in 16 and 17. It says here in verse 18, even when they made a molded calf for themselves. They actually made something and said to this thing, this is your God that brought you out of Egypt. And it says they worked great provocations. Great provocations. Now why is this worse? Why? I, this is gross idolatry 
They, in a sense, spit in the face of the one who was, even at that time, in love, giving them his law. Those are great provocations. They insulted God. They blasphemed God. They, they gave credit for God's loving deliverance of them to this thing, something they had made. And they saw the mighty works of God, yet they refused to follow him. They created their own God and said to each other, this is the God who brought you out of Egypt. How terrible to say to, about a worthless idol rather than that the living God who loved them cared, and who cared for them. They spoke such a thing. Their hearts were idol factories. Calvin in the Institute said that man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. Man's mind, full as it is of pride and boldness, dares to imagine a God according to its own capacity. May the Lord keep us from idolizing anything or anyone. The law of grace is very clear. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. And praise God, we have been delivered from our great provocations against the holy God, against our Lord, from our idolatry by the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ for us. In Ezekiel 36, this beautiful promise, or beautiful description of the promise, the Lord said to us, to his people, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. This is the great mercy of the Lord our God. And our Lord Jesus is the fulfillment of all the covenants. We can now know his mercies in an even greater way, I think, than they did through the spirit of grace given to us. Verse 19, remembering back, it says, even when they did such a heinous sin, it says, verse 19, we see again God's repeated kindness, yet in your manifold mercies, you did not forsake them in the wilderness. They deserved to be forsaken. The pillar of cloud did not depart. He kept it there from, day, from the day to lead them on the road, nor the pillar of fire by night to show them light and the way they should go. Because of God's multiplied covenant mercies to us, we see here another yet, another pouring out of, of God's grace on his people in, in a number of ways. Then verse 19, it says, he led them in the wilderness, as I mentioned, they deserved to be. They were stiff-necked people. But he showed them the right path they were to go on. And he gave them light because he, he's a covenant-keeping God. In verse 25, it says, show me your ways. David said, show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. There is no other salvation. We should never go anywhere else to ask someone to lead us a certain way. In verse 32, which we heard this morning, is a prayer of confession by David where he is rejoicing in the Lord's forgiveness. And after David said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, then just a little bit later, the Lord said, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Praise God. He forgives us and he continues to guide us. He leads his people. And then he gave his spirit, it says, to instruct and to lead. In his kindness. Verse 20, you also gave your good spirit to instruct them. Now at that time, 
God's Spirit gave his law through Moses and spoke through Moses and then through the prophets and gave the people the truth. He gave them his law and the knowledge of God and what pleases him. All believers have the Spirit of truth dwelling in them. He is our guide into the truth of the Word. He keeps our hearts from being idle factories. And as we just read from Ezekiel 36, it's, the Lord said, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Praise God. He will give us grace to apply, to do his word. Brothers and sisters in Christ, do you not know that you are temp the temple of God and the spirit of God dwells in you? Praise God for the gift of the spirit of grace in us. He doesn't leave us in the wilderness. And then third, he provided fully for their physical needs, verses 20 and 21. And they praised the Lord, it says, and did not, that he did not, withhold, and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. This is good for them to recount this. Forty years, they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. So they're praising God for his kindness to their ancestors as they look back. And our Heavenly Father did not withhold the bread of life from us, his only son. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things, all things that we need for life and godliness? They're given to us in the Lord Jesus. He will satisfy our thirst. He will sustain us in our wilderness. And as if the previous actions of God's grace didn't show the greatness of his love enough, there are many future and generational blessings awaiting his people. Verse 20, verses 22 through 25. Moreover, it says, and I look at that as uh, almost even greater grace for the future. Moreover, you gave them kingdoms and nations and divided them into districts. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, land of the king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. So he gave them land, gave them a place. And you can learn of these battles and the defeat of these kings in Numbers 21 where the people of Israel took over the land. It was a, a good land. Uh, took over the Moabite land, people who would not allow them to go through earlier. This is called the Transjordan, east of Jordan. So they took that over. They had victory over mighty and wealthy enemies. And the wealth that these pagan kings built up was kept for God's people, just as he had designed Proverbs 13, 22, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. Our God is good to us, and he's preparing for our future. And since we are all wealthy here, here's a reminder from Deuteronomy 8. And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. And this, I want you to remember, the second half of this, that he may establish his covenant which he swore to your fathers. He's given us wealth. He's made us very wealthy. You are given wealth to be used for the establishment of his covenant, his kingdom. Not, it's not primarily for our comfort, although he, in his kindness he allows us to enjoy his good gifts and, and comfort. But the wealth of the nations will be transferred to the saints that they may establish his covenant by the grace of God. And then he promised descendants, people, to fill that land that he's giving them. He blesses with covenant children and with victory through our covenant children. Verse 23, you also multiplied their children as the stars of heaven and brought them into the land which you had told their fathers to go in and possess. So the people went in and possessed the land 
You subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hands with their kings and the people of the land that they might do with them as they wished. Now that phrase, as the stars of heaven, you probably recognize, but these multitude of descendants were promised to Abraham because at the time, just before he was going to kill his son Isaac, his hand was stayed by the Lord. And right after that, the Lord said, blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gates of their enemies. We are some of those stars. We are some of those grains of sand. God enabled them to subdue the people in the land that he had promised to give them. And it may be hard for us, I think, sometimes, on a day-by-day basis anyway, to see that happening in our lives right now, in the history part of history we are in. But the people of God will possess the gates of their enemies. And we pray for generations of covenant children among us here who will be raised up and become an army who will subdue the world in the name of and the power of our king. And then it says in verse 25, they took strong cities. These are not just little, you know, tiny cities. These are strong cities and a rich land and possessed houses full of goods, cisterns already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. You can imagine this beautiful land that they were given. And they, when they came there, they saw whole cities with fertile land around them. They saw houses full of things that they would need right then. Water wells already dug, established vineyards for wine, and olive grows for oil. God fulfills his covenant. The Lord, through his covenant, gives us a future and a hope. The promise we should cling to, Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. But then it says, by his good spirit, talks about his good spirit. He enables us to delight in his goodness. So this delight is how we want to end looking at this today. He fills us up with goodness, essentially, is what it's saying. He makes us fat. (laughs) He satisfies us with his great goodness due to his covenant of grace with us. It says, so they ate and they were filled and they grew fat. They had everything they needed and more. And it says, they delighted themselves in your great goodness, in the great goodness of their God to them. Now, some versions say that they reveled here, not delighted. They reveled reveled in your great goodness. And I referred to a reveling that took place before that was not the good kind when they had made the golden calf. Here, they're reveling in God's great goodness, as they should. This is what we are learning to do, I believe, by the grace of God, I Rejoice every time I worship here. We we are growing each Lord's Day to understand what that means and that we can delight in his great goodness to us. Isaiah 55 again. It kind of says, heads up here. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. May it be so here. May we delight. May our souls delight in the abundance of the Spirit. Now all of these great blessings point us to the grace that we uh, all have available because of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who died for us, who suffered for us. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. As they look back, They saw many weaknesses, sins, egregious ones. 
We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have a high priest who understands our weaknesses. And it says, who was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And because of his perfect life and sacrifice, this also from Hebrews 4, let us then, therefore, come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. May those cycles be much shorter in our lives than it was for them. May we come boldly to the throne of grace. It is, brothers and sisters in Christ, it is at the throne of the grace of God, the God of grace, I'm sorry, and his grace, and because of his faithfulness to his covenant of grace, that we can obtain mercy and find grace to help in our times of need. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we of all people on earth have manifold reasons to praise you that through the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior and through the indwelling of your precious spirit, we are able to delight in your great goodness. And we are able to praise you for your continual mercy and grace poured out upon us. Oh, that we would abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit and be thankful, people, grateful for the redemption that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ and that we would always be hopeful because we are fully assured of your covenant of grace and of the blessings of the covenant. Lord, forgive us for our ungratefulness. Help us to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord in humility, in obedience, in being faithful stewards of your covenant blessings, all of which we have through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.